Amen. That is, like, God's love for us is so unbelievable. You know, if, um, good morning. You know, if you don't know who I am, I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you're joining us this morning. And um, last week, you know, I, I encouraged you all to, to do a better job clapping, and I'm glad that this week three of you listened to me. Um, <laughs> Because again, we have, it was kind of funny because at staff meeting, as we were debriefing the service, somebody in staff meeting was like, oh no, here goes Steve again. He thought I was going to rebuke, uh, rebuke Mark for clapping like I did all the, like, from the Sunday school thing. And, and uh, so, nope, 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 I didn't. Uh, uh, but we have a lot to celebrate. The Lord, the Lord has blessed us immensely and, and uh, he wants us to worship him with everything we are. So thank you for those of you that joined in and hopefully we can keep progressing on that. And um, one other thing, that I'm just going to ask you for your help, and this is going to sound really weird. It's going to sound like I'm playing a practical joke on you, and I'm actually not. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed how every once in a while our projectors will like glitch, and then they have to cycle back before they, you guys have noticed that? Yeah, it, the weirdest thing is that the only thing that we've been able to like synchronize, them, can you put something up on the screen just so that we can test this? Is that when it, it happened last week, and it happened again this week, when, you, when, when don't do it yet, because I want us to do it all together. When everybody stood at the same time, both projectors went down. Did you notice that? When Aaron said, please stand, both projectors crashed. And it makes no sense, because it goes up through the ceiling. But on the count of three, I want everybody to stand so we can test it. Ready? One, two, three. All right, now, oh! <laughs> Did you do that? That is the weirdest thing. I was gonna make you, if it didn't work, I was gonna make you guys jump and see if I could make you do weird things, but, but uh. Okay, let's try it one more time. Just because it was fun. Ready, one, two, three. That is so weird. It did it twice. It did it every single time. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about, uh, I've talked with Aaron about, is that you know sometimes we say it from up here, like when when we're leading worship, like you know stand or sit or whatever you feel like doing, you know. And so some people stand, some people sit, which is great, like that people feel the freedom to kind of worship God how they want. But oftentimes in the Psalms, like it doesn't, it doesn't say like do whatever you feel like doing. You know, this is a corporate activity, so so I think it's good for us to say let's all stand together. But then our, our technology dies. So maybe we'll go back to just do whatever you feel like. Uh, that is so weird. Um, Aaron told me that last week. I'm like, no way. Um, but two for two, it's got to be more than a grin. There's gremlins in the system for those of you that are old enough to know what that's a reference to. So, All right. We're actually here not for calisthenics, but for the Word of God. So if you're just joining us, we are in John chapter 6 this morning. And last week, we saw these two really, we, we, in our study last week, we saw like these two really kind of like well-known miracles of Jesus, how Jesus fed the 5,000. He took five loaves and a couple fish, and he fed the 5,000 with it. And then after that, the disciples were heading across the sea, and Jesus came to them walking on the water in the midst of the storm. And if you remember, the, if you, remember uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that John was trying to contrast for us the response of the crowds to Jesus with the response of true discipleship and how the crowds that were following Jesus, they, they were like enamored with his miracles. They were like astounded that they were fed off of five loaves and a couple fish. And, 
and they were pursuing and following Jesus, and they even acknowledged him to be the prophet that was promised. They said in, the, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I think it is, like uh, God promised that he would raise up another prophet for them like Moses. And they're like, oh, this must be the guy like Moses. And, and then it says that they wanted to make him king. So they were, they were so fanatical about Jesus. They're like, this is the new Moses that's going to that's gonna rescue us from oppression, that's going to deliver us into like this kingdom of God's blessings. So we'll experience prosperity and life. And even though they acknowledged him as prophet and king, you know, what they really wanted from him was just prosperity and comfort and everything else. And they weren't really interested in like listening to what he had to say as prophet or like surrendering their, their own sovereignty to him as king and, and following his plan. They just had their own agenda. You know, and what we're going to see um, this week is that, is that Jesus is going to address those crowds and kind of address this, the, this situation specifically. And I think it's an important text for us this morning because, I mean, every text is important, but this one is important for this reason, is that is that I think it's oftentimes easy to get discouraged in this world because, uh, you know, as the, as the church is kind of getting moved more and more to the margins of our society, as, as, we're, not, as we're not looked upon with favor anymore, as we're actually looked upon as, as like, kind of like the, the opposition to everything that's right. You know, it, it's easy to get discouraged. Like, why don't people, like, listen to this amazing message of the gospel? Like, why don't they listen and, and receive life from Jesus and why does it have to be so complicated? And I think this text addresses that, and it probably even more importantly, it addresses the issues in our own hearts that speak to us of, of like, why don't I believe Jesus more? Why don't I trust him deeper? Why don't I like live my life in full devotion to him? You know, and Jesus is going to speak to those things here as he addresses the crowd. You know, our text is going to break down into two kind of main sections. Verses 25 through 34 is discouraging conversations with the crowd. We're going to see Jesus have a, have a conversation with like the, all those people that were following him around. And, um, you know, if it was me having that conversation, I'd be pretty discouraged. You'll see why, you know, as we go on. And then we're going to see uh, Jesus make some confident claims in verses 35 through 40, where we see that he's not discouraged at all because he knows that, like, God's will is perfectly being accomplished. So please stand with me and I'll go ahead and read our text. I'll read that, just that first section 25 through 34 this morning, except I'm not in John. Okay. Did it do it again? Wow, that's so weird. It's a good thing, like, most, if you've been here at the church for a while, you know I'm pretty easily distracted. In fact, there's like glitter on the floor. I was like, is this just to mess with me? Um, <laughs> And if, I, and if I saw the projectors going off all the time, I'd be like, anyway, never mind. Too much confession. All right. John chapter 6, starting at verse 25. Um, actually, yeah, verses 25 through 34. This is God's word for his church. It says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, for the food which endure, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
They said, therefore, to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life, life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for just the greatness of Jesus Christ and that in him we have life and, um, and that he comes to give us that abundantly. And so, Father, I just ask that you would work through your spirit to, to empower me to speak this morning, um, that you would work to open our hearts to hear so that we could behold you and see you for who you are, believe in you, and experience life in your name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's weird. All right. Verse 25, you know, starts off, and, and, and you know, this was after that they had crossed back to the sea. They, 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 uh, the crowds, not knowing that Jesus walked across the water to get there, at least halfway across the lake to get there. Um, what we saw last week is that verse 25 shows that the crowds don't even understand enough about Jesus to ask the right questions. They're, they were asking the question, when did you get here? When the real question that they should have been asking is, how did you get here? Because there was no boat, and somehow you got across the sea. And here's Jesus' response to them, and I think it's, you know, it's such an interesting conversation, because look what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. We saw that last week, and we talked a little bit about that last week, how, how Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, that was done as a sign, and that signs are meant to point to something greater. And so what, what Jesus is saying is that not that they didn't see him feed them with the feeding of the 5,000, but that but they didn't see the sign for what it was. They didn't see the sign as pointing them to him and pointing them to something else. They saw the sign as something as an end in itself. Like, man, this is great. We just got all free lunch and we got free lunch like conjured out of almost nothing. This is amazing. And they looked no further and they were just happy that their stomachs were filled. So Jesus responds to them and he says this, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. You know, there in verse 27, at the last half of that, Jesus, Jesus refers to himself in a couple different ways, and I don't want us to miss this because the crowd completely missed it, but the first thing he says is that, that the Son of Man is going to give you this bread that never perishes. And we've seen this idea of the Son of Man multiple times in the book of John so far, but Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days and receiving this kingdom and ruling over the whole earth. And, and Jesus is like, you know, I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to give you that bread that will last forever. And then he says, upon whom the Father has set his seal. In fact, back in John chapter 5, we saw Jesus refer to both of these things. He, he, he called God his father, and the crowds wanted to kill him because he was making himself to be equal with God. What Jesus is saying when he calls God even his own father is that he has the same DNA as God. They're one and the same. He has this unique relationship with God that no one else has. So he's declaring, like, I'm the promised one who's going to establish the, the kingdom 
I have this unique relationship with the Father. And on me, on this one, he actually hasn't claimed it to be himself yet, but on this one, the Father has set his seal. He has, he has endorsed me. He has put his mark of approval on me. And so you have this like, amazing statement. In fact, Jesus talked about it in John chapter 5. Uh, I have it on the screen. John 5, verse 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now, uh, now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus had just claimed, right, that he has the authority over life and death. He had just claimed that he has the authority to judge this world, like he's this, the statement of his greatness. And he's like, and he's telling the crowds, like, don't like devote your life to all of those things that are just going to perish. Devote your life to the, to the Son of Man, God's like chosen king, the one that he's endorsed, the one that the one that's going to reign over all things, the one that can give life. Because then he'll give you this bread that never perishes. You know, I think oftentimes we are a lot like these crowds where we just kind of, we want to, and we talked about this last week too, we, we just want to go to, in, to Jesus for what we can get from him. Instead of going to Jesus for, him, for like knowing him himself. You know, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the, the, the problem with humanity started in the garden, and Adam and Eve lived in this gar the Garden of Eden. It was this perfect place where they had this perfect relationship with each other. They had this perfect provision from God. They had this purpose, that, and they lost it all when they rebelled against God. But the, the thing that they lost that was the most significant, from which everything else like, came, was they lost their intimacy with God. And here Jesus is, is promising, like, man, come to me. Come to me, and I can give you this bread that will never perish. Like, pursue me. Surrender yourself to me. Follow me. Learn from me. And everything will be different. Stop working for the work of all those things, the bread that's just going to, like, decay. You know, and, and, and this is where the conversation gets discouraging because look at the crowd's response. They completely, like, missed the fact that Jesus talks about the Son of Man. They completely missed the fact that Jesus claimed uh, that there was one who had this unique relationship with the Father. And they, they, instead of asking, like, oh, who is the Son of Man so that we can go to him and have, like, bread? Look what they say. It's, come almost, it's almost unrelated, except they obsess on one word that Jesus says. What, they, verse 28, they said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So they heard Jesus use this word work, and they're like, oh, good. Now we know, like, all that we need to know is what do I have to do so that I can do the works of God, so I can experience what God has? Like, I just want to know the list of things. Like, what is it that you demand from me? You know, and the Jewish people are so, like, reveal something that's about our hearts. Like, I was talking to a a guy, his name is, his, um, wow, I just spaced off his first name. His last name is Bailey, um, probably because you guys all stood and my projector's resetting. <laughs> He's planning a church in Denver. I was, I was talking to him this week, and one of the things he said to me was that, that the human heart 
is on a relentless like escalator towards self-righteousness. You know, you get on the moving walkways at PDX and it's just going to sweep you down the path towards self-righteousness. And we see that here. As soon as Jesus talks about like, like don't work for the stuff that perishes, they're like, oh, what do we need to work for? Give me the list. And they miss the fact that Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to give you this bread. We just want to know the list of things we have to do to work. And they completely overestimate their own ability to please God. They completely overestimate their own strength. And look at Jesus' response to them. Verse 29, And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. All that you have to do is place your faith in, in, in the one that God has sent. And, and you can see that they understood, at, that, at least at that point, that he was talking about himself, because in verse 30, they said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign? Right? So they, at that point, they knew that Jesus was talking about himself. He's just saying, all that you have to do is believe in me. Understand me for who I am. Put your faith and your confidence in me, and I will give you this bread. That's the work. Is this work of faith? Is this belief? But the crowds, and we're going to see, like as the as the chapter continues, the crowds don't ever get there. You know, I think the the challenging thing for us is that, you know, the crowds are just informed by like their life in this world. If you think about it, like how much of your energy is spent just making sure your bills are paid, you've got food on the table, you've got like all of this stuff that's going to perish, right? And, and like the rulers over us, their whole life is consumed about making sure those things happen for them and then for us, um, right? Like, we're just shaped by the culture around us. And I guess the question I have before we kind of move on to point two is, you know, how often do we behave more in line with our old life, which is this life of pursuing bread that perishes, more than we do with the new life, which is pursuing the bread that's going to last forever? pursuing those things that are going to last for eternity. You know, I think we, we, sometimes we can come to Jesus, we pray, and our desires and our prayers kind of reflect just the same desires that everybody in the world has for around us, like safety and security and peace and power to make it through so that we know that this, this life is going to be okay. And it's, it's basically the same life that everybody else around us is living with like some religious frosting put on it. But Jesus is offering us so much more. He's offering us himself. He's offering us his grace, his life, relationship with him. And it's something that the crowd was so locked in on their own, like, their own life that they just wouldn't surrender to him. They wouldn't listen to him. And as soon as Jesus, like, doesn't, like, meet their expectations, they just, they're going to bail on him. We saw that at the end of the chapter. But life is not found just from Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. And pursuing him and surrendering to him and letting him direct our, our life, even when it doesn't completely make sense. But I think often we're like the crowds. We've already judged in our minds and we've made up like what God needs to do to make me happy, what God needs to do to, make, to provide for me, what God needs to do and what my life should look like. And as soon as it doesn't go down that way, we're like, right? 
I always joke around half facetiously, half facetiously about Steve's perfect world plan, and I'm always shocked that God doesn't sign up for my plan. Like, it never goes down like I, I, I want it to or I expect it to. So pretty much if we want to make a decision, like ask me what I think should happen, you, you can rule that one out, right? So. <laughs> but we already, we, our presuppositions leave us blind to what God really is calling us to and what God really wants to do like in us and through us and for us. And it's discouraging, right? Because then the, then the crowds are like, so the crowds understand what Jesus is calling them to. Look at, then look in verse 30. They said, therefore, then, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So they're like, okay, Jesus, if you claim to be the Son of Man, if you claim to be, like, have this unique relationship with the Father, if you claim to be the one who can give us life, then do a miracle to prove that you can, like, deliver on your promises. In fact, we're going to make a suggestion. Next verse. 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave, them, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So here's an idea, Jesus. Like Moses, if you're the prophet like Moses, then do a miracle like Moses. Give us bread where there is no bread. <laughs> Leanne laughed because she, this is the discouraging part, like, these people, their, their vision was way too short-sighted about what God wanted to accomplish with them, and their memory was way too short, period. Because yesterday, <laughs> Jesus fed the 5,000. This was the same crowd. Jesus took bread, gave them bread when they were out in the wilderness, and fed them with it. And they're like, hey, why don't you do this, like something with bread? That's a good idea. <laughs> something in the back of my mind says, like, that would be something. Man, how super discouraging. Like, for Jesus, like, what? And then Jesus, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father. There's that unique relationship statement again. Who gives you true bread out of heaven? For the, true, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And he's already talked about him, himself being the one that's been sent and He's like, I'm the true bread. I'm the one that gives life. I just fed you. And they, like the woman at the well, if you remember when you were in John 4, the woman at the well, when Jesus was talking about water, she couldn't get her mind off of her like worldly presuppositions again. And, and they're in the same boat because look what they respond. Oh, Lord, evermore give us this bread. We want that food that perishes. And you just have to be like, you know, if, if I'm, if, and fortunately Jesus isn't me, like again, and I'm not him, be clear about that. It's easy to confuse, I'm sure. <laughs> that was sarcasm for those of you who don't know me. Like, and, and, and Jesus gets super explicit with it. Look what he says down in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. It's like, okay, you guys aren't catching it. I'll just be blunt. It's me. You know, it kind of brings us to our second point, is that Jesus began to make some confident claims here, and one of his confident claims is like, he's the bread of life, and anyone that comes to him, like, 
their deepest hungers and their like most parched thirst will be quenched in him. Those things that you need more than anything, your deepest root needs are going to be met in Jesus. And then he says this, verse, 30, verse 36, which is really interesting. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. I'm right here, everybody. You can see me. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my teaching. You've listened to me. I'm like right here in like full color. And you still don't believe. Now, I want us to reflect on that a little bit because that should raise a question in our mind. This is the question. Why? Why don't they believe? They've got miracle after miracle. It says that that this crowd was originally following Jesus because they had seen the healings that he did. Then Jesus fed them, like, fed the 5,000. And then the very next day, they're like, well, you better show us some bread thing, you know? They've seen him, they've heard him, and they still don't believe. Like, is Jesus, like, that bad of a teacher? Like, I was like, man, if I could, like, whip up a meal and just be like, there you guys, you're all fed, right? And then I could use that as the perfect illustration for this bread of life discourse. I'm like, man, like, everybody would believe then. And yet, they don't. So if Jesus, like the, the one who created the universe, who knows the, the hearts of men, who, who can see inside every single one of us, who knows like our deepest desires and our deepest like thoughts, and, and who can, can do whatever he wants and communicate perfectly, if he can't convince them, who can? In fact, like what hope is there for me? Why would I get up here week after week after week if Jesus can't pull it off? There's no way I'm going to pull it off. Well, Jesus answers that question that's next, and it's, I think it's going to like cause some dissonance in our hearts and really cause us to struggle. But what Jesus says next is really, really interesting. Look what he says. I'll start reading again at verse 35, and I'm going to read all the way through 40. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day." For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus' answer is really interesting. First thing that we see about Jesus is that he is, he is not at all like frustrated, insecure about his ability to teach, insecure about his preaching abilities. In fact, he's super confident. He makes the first confident claim. It's in verse in verses 38 and 39, like, I am doing the will of my Father. Like, I'm perfectly carrying out what God's plan is, and God has a plan, and I, as his son, am carrying out his plan, and I will carry it out until the day when I return, and this world is put, like, in all of its brokenness, is put to rest. God's plan is not interrupted by their unbelief. You know, and then we, we look at a verse like verse 40, and in verse, like, this is framed in, in really interesting ways. Verse 35, 
I am the bread of life. He, he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Like, we're like, yeah, that's true. Verse 40, this is the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son, that word behold there is interesting. It's different than all the words seeing that was in there because there was all this language of discussion about seeing and believing. The word behold means to look at something with intention and with purpose. And it also means to like, to like, uh, like participating in it even experientially to some degree. So later on in the book of John, like Jesus says, you, like those who believe in me will not see death. They won't participate in like death in its ultimate. We use it, we use it the same way. Like, oh, that, that, that woman, like she has seen suffering. There's this, there's this participation in it and this looking upon it with, in, in, with purpose. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. He, whoever beholds the Son who sees the Him and believes, I will raise Him up on the last day. And we're okay with that, right? But look what Jesus says in verse 37. This is the one that I think is going to cause us some struggle. In response to this question that of, I mean, the question wasn't asked of the text, but I raised the question of like, why aren't people believing? Look what Jesus says in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So there's a couple movements here. There's, the first thing he says is that the Father has these people that he's giving to the Son. How many of the people that the Father is giving to the Son come to the Son? What does it say? All, right? So the Father has these people that he's giving to the Son. And what does the Son do with those people? He doesn't cast them out. And one day, he's going to raise them up so that they can experience like life in the way God intended it forever. So which one of those things is true? Like, what Jesus says first, after saying that they don't believe, it's, he says that if the Father had given you to me, you would believe. In fact, everybody that the Father gives believes. God's will is not interrupted. In fact, Jesus is perfectly carrying out the will of the Father. And I'm going to raise him up on the last day, and I'm not going, and he, in fact, he, he, he develops this discussion. Um, Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm doing God's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So the father has this group of people he's giving to the son, and the son is like, I am perfectly fulfilling God's will. I'm not going to lose any of them. And they will experience the life that God has. And in the same section, he says, he, he makes these calls like of whoever believes. Now, if, are you guys beginning to feel the dissonance in your hearts and minds right now? If you're not, wake up. This, is, this kind of takes us into a place in the scriptures where um, these are deep theological waters. And one of the things that the scriptures does like unapologetically over and over and over again is it puts these two ideas that we don't know how to reconcile in our mind. These two ideas of, of like our own human responsibility we are morally, like, we are moral creatures accountable to God for, for what we choose to do. And, and we come to faith. When we behold the Son, we genuinely choose to come to faith. 
And right alongside that, it'll say, because the Father gave you to the Son. And if you, and if you try to like land on one of those or the other, I don't think your, your life is going to be balanced. I think what the scriptures do over and over and over again is it, is it challenges us to, to like believe and cling to both of those things simultaneously. You know, in fact, uh, and, I, and it makes a difference. This isn't, just, this isn't just Bible college debate stuff. This makes a difference in our life. In fact, J.I. Packer, I've, I've got this quote in his book, Concise Theology. This is in his introduction. That's usually about as far as I get in the book. Um, <laughs> all my quotes come from introductions or prefaces <laughs> or the back cover. <laughs> That's a joke. I've actually read this one. It's a good book. Theology is for doxology and devotion that is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. What J.I. Packer is telling us is that, is that when we dive into the deep things of the scriptures like this idea, and I'm not a, I know that in your mind you probably have like a million questions. Feel free to email those to, to me. I mean, I'd be happy to engage you on those things. But as we dive into these deep things, like we get this deeper grasp of like who God is. We get this deeper grasp of what he wants to do and it moves our hearts to what Packer would say, doxology, the worship of God. And it changes the way we think so that it fuels our heart. Sorry. God. It fuels our heart so that, so that we love Jesus more, and when we love Jesus more, we follow him more, we're more devoted to him. These things matter. That's why in their scriptures, and that's why they're in the scriptures again and again and again. We're going to see Jesus talk about this again in John 8. We're going to see him talk about it again in John 10. Over and over and over again, he's going to talk about this. It's all through the pages of scriptures. There's this tension where God is the one who saves. That's what Jonah said. Salvation is from the Lord. And yet, right alongside that, it, we're responsible to like, place our faith in him and, and we bear the consequences of our rejection of him. You know, I think that's important. And, and if, for those of you that get my notes that I send out ahead of time, like, I was really struggling with how to kind of like, land the plane this morning because there are so many places I could go as I just begin to reflect on like, what does this mean that the fact that the Father gives people to the Son and that the Son secures them until that day when they're, they're raised again to experience life in Jesus. Like, there's so many implications as we try to wrap our minds around that. First of all, I think, I mean, so I'm just going to bring up a couple. Yeah, I think God wants us to know that his grace and his love for us is deeper than we ever thought. God's grace and his love for us is deeper than we ever thought. I think we're so often like the crowds earlier in the thing that as soon as we find out like, like that Jesus is offering something, we immediately go to like, oh, what work do I need to do? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to do to earn God's favor? Like God has taken us off this treadmill of like performance and just making us secure in his love so that we respond to him out of, out of, our, out of love and desire and grace. Like he wants us to know his grace is deeper than we ever imagined. 
You know, I think it, like side by side with that, kind of the flip side of that is we way overestimate our abilities to like understand and believe Jesus. We way over under, un, underestimate, overestimate our abilities. Look, look what it says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. You know, because Jesus is talking about whoever beholds the Son and believes in him. This is talking about seeing and believing. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul says. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let's just stop there for a second. Go back. Thank you. Listen to what that says. The unbelieving are what? They're blind. They're blinded by the God of this world so that they can't see. They can't see what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Like there is this blindness that is settled over the world and we way underestimate its effect and we way overestimate our ability on our own to see. Then let's go on. Paul says, for we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now listen, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Like who's the one that opens the eyes of the blind? Anybody? Yeah, God does through his son Jesus. He opens the eyes of the blind so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Like, we can see God in Jesus Christ and we come to know him because God, just like at the beginning, calls light into existence and illumines our heart is the theological word for that so that we can see the truth of it. What that means and what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6 is that if you're a Christian this morning, it wasn't just because you heard the gospel and you made this decision to believe all on your own. What Jesus' words to you are is that if, if you've come to believe in Jesus Christ and find life in him, it's because before time began, we'll see that in just a minute, the Father had a plan and gave you to the Son. And for all of human history, the rest of your life, Jesus is going to be faithful to you so that on that last day, you will be raised and you will experience life for all eternity. What does he say? He loses nothing of all that the Father has given him. You know, like, so we can just step off of that treadmill for a minute. Like, I don't, my, God's love for me, his care for me, his his concern for me, his, his promise to me that all things are going to work together for good. It's because of his faithfulness to me, not my faithfulness to him. If my life is contingent upon my faithfulness, like sell stock, right? Like, we're going down. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher, I think in the 1800s, kind of a real, real famous preacher, um, as he was wrestling with this or talking to people who were wrestling with this, he, he has this really funny quote that I thought would be helpful at this point. Um, and this is this doctrine of God, like giving people to the Son, is called the doctrine of election. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never, or he would have, 
Never would he have chosen me afterwards. And, he goes on, I think there's more. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Just feel the weight of that. Like, what did you do? Like, what's inside of you that causes you to be deserving of God's love for you? And so Charles Spurgeon says, so I am forced to accept the great biblical doctrine, right? As difficult as it is, because it speaks to God's love for us. You know, I think that's the second thing, is that God wants us to know that we are secure in that love, that you know, we have this unrelenting tendency in our hearts to think that our salvation and his love for us is contingent and dependent upon our faithfulness to him rather than his faithfulness to us. And he wants us to know that he loves us and he has us no matter what you face. I mean, in, in Ephesians, and we're going to look at multiple sections in here, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, it says this. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, and there it is, there's this responsibility to believe, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That God gave you his Holy Spirit. Your, your salvation isn't just this trans transactional thing that happened because you believed. That God gave you his spirit and he changed your heart. So now your heart is like inclined towards the Lord. If that hasn't happened in your heart, like I would question whether or not you even have come to know him and believe in him. You have this inclination towards the Lord. And then it says, but he talks about the spirit here as a seal. He's like the down payment. He's God's signature. He's a, he's a stamp for what? Like, as a pledge of our inheritance. That's that idea of down payment, that, that God, and God doesn't default on his loans, right? With a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Like, God's given you his Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is a down payment, so that one day you will be redeemed and experience, like, being God's own possession so that all praise goes to him. God has you. There's more. You know, this love for, that, that Spurgeon talked about, this special love that was before he was born. Like the scriptures talk about too, that too in Ephesians 1, verse, starting at verse 3. This is how Paul opens the book of Ephesians. Of, his letter to the Ephesian church. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now listen. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, if you're a Christian, like God chose you with all of your imperfections, all of your brokenness, all of your like rebellion, all of those, like your unfaithfulness that you bring into your relationship with the Lord, like God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. So this promise here in verse three starts before God created the world. When are we gonna stand before God? Anybody, you guys still with me? When it's all over, right? In this one verse, like, we see, like, God's, like, care for us from before time began until time is all wrapped up in Jesus. Then he says, 
in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In love, he predestined us. Like, God loved you before time. It's that special love that Spurgeon talked about. And he predestined you to become one of his children and he gave you to the son and the son didn't cast you out. He brought you in and he's going to hang on to you until he raises you up on that last day. What? How does it end? Which he freely bestowed on, oh, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, which is talking about Jesus. And then he goes and talks about how Jesus, like, did the same things for us. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And after, after he talks about what Jesus did for us in, in, in the other part of Ephesians 1, it ends that with, to the praise of his glory. Theology, these deep things, are for doxology and devotion. They're for the praise of God. When we realize, like, oh, like my salvation is your work, Lord, from beginning to end, and so much, like, so little to do with me, I just want to praise your glory and your grace because there was nothing in me that would cause cause you to look upon me with your special love. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? Like, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. I guess I just want to think about this for a second and, like, what would it look like in your life if you beheld the Son, and the way he's describing us here, describing himself here, in all of his beauty and glory and majesty, and knew deep down in your soul that his love for you, his commitment to you, his care for you is absolutely and eternally locked in. Like if you beheld like God who is the, the one that's most worthy to be loved, and you were convinced that his love for you was completely locked in and it would never waver, what would be your response? I think the response is what Packer talked about. It would be devotion, right? Like when the most like lovely thing in all of the universe, God himself reveals himself to you and commits his love to you, like the normal human response is to love him back. And if you don't, then there is something jacked up in your heart. Like I was talking to somebody just last week or two weeks ago, like imagine if Rachel, my wife, came to me and said, you know, Steve, and she, she's done this, like, I love you, I'm committed to you, like no matter what you do, I'm, like, I'm going to just continue to love you and be devoted to you and care for you and seek your best and honor you as my husband and pray for you. You know, what, what, what I should respond is like, man, I just love, I can't even believe that, but I, I love you deeply, right? What if instead when she tells me that, I'm like, sweet, now I can do whatever I want, right? And you'll still love me. Is the problem with her or is the problem with me? The problem's not with her commitment to us. It's in my, like, 
sin and unfaithfulness and like lack of commitment to her. When we understand like God's love for us, that he's looked upon us with a special love before time, and he, he continues with us until after time, and that Jesus won't lose anything that belongs to him. If we really behold and believe that, it'll change the way we live, and we'll be devoted to him. So Aaron, why don't you come up? I've gone over time, I'm sorry, but, um, and you can close us, and then, you know, if, after the worship team plays every week, we always have people up here to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, if you want to talk about how you can come to know Jesus, um, please come forward. They would love to, to pray for you. They'd love to celebrate something with you. Um, they'd love to just, uh, like, talk if you just wanted to praise God, whatever. Like, um, please come forward um, after we're done and do that. But um, Aaron, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer.